Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the TV and comics writer, Paul Cornell. Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, uh, I said TV and comics because those are perhaps the two things that most people are going to know you for, but like so many of us, <laughs> you do a lot more. So for the benefit of listeners who aren't familiar with you, uh, just tell us a bit about you know who you are and what you do. Well, I guess um, I'm a, I do three sorts of things. I do uh, TV, comics, and prose. And um, it, I'm probably still best known for my Doctor Who television. I've done elementary, all sorts of other shows. Um, comics, um, I've got some creator-owned comics like Saucer Country that I did long stints at Marvel and DC. And um, prose, I wrote the Shadow Police novels and I'm writing the Litchford novellas as well as lots of short stories. So that's kind of the, the spread of what I do. And you've been doing it for quite some time. I mean, you, you, you say that you're best known for Yahoo TV and we'll get onto that later, I suppose. But you started in TV, didn't you? Um, yeah, my very first thing more than 25 years ago um, was I won a competition on BBC Two um, and um, myself and I think eight other, seven other writers uh, got a little 20 minute playlet uh, produced and mine had Pete Postlethwaite and Rita Wolf in it. So I wow. was very lucky about that. Yeah. And uh, then it took me another seven years before Russell T Davis got me onto Children's Ward for my second credit. <laughs> Oh, so is that your Who connection? Or is that how the Who connection started, I should say? Yeah, me and Russell had worked together, and um, he'd um, come in to storyline a children's soap opera um, uh, created by Stephen Moffat's dad that I was going to be writing, and that never happened. And... Um, uh, and I'd met Moffat because uh, I'd written a really good review of press gang in the guinness book of uh, tv and he <laughs> sought me out so you know um i was kind of and because i was always a doctor who fan just implicitly part of that fandom i was you know the tv writer that was known to other fans and was a doctor who fan so i was kind of very well placed when the tv show came along that oh yeah that always helps doesn't it i mean people networking has a bad name because people get the wrong idea about it but all it really is is just who you meet in your career yeah. and you know being a nice person well and good at your job i mean you can't just go up to people and start networking with a capital n um it's just about the people you meet along the way and i i always think that you really shouldn't you shouldn't think so hard about creating networking you should just let it happen and but pay attention when you're aware that it is happening or that it is about to happen. And basically, don't be an idiot and be friendly and nice to people. And that's got me a long way, honestly. <laughs> it is a perpetual piece of advice, isn't it? It's just, you know, be yourself, act professionally, be nice, don't overdo it. Having been brought up with a certain enforced politeness... That really works. Politeness has evolved for a reason, and it stops you from falling over your feet much. You know, yeah. Um, people recognise what you're doing, and um, so yeah, um, I I do think it's all about waiting for those moments and then making sure you grab them. Um, 
because the moments are entirely random in anyone's career. You never know. You know, you just have. Well, I think it was. It's either Picasso or a golfer who said <laughs> that, and I, I think it's attributed to both. Um, it's quite similar. I think Picasso said it. Um, one needs luck, but luck has to find you working. Oh yeah, that's good. Because you need the skill, you need to have built up your skill level, and you can do that in any any venue at all. But then, when the break comes along, you'll actually have the skill to deal with it. Hopefully. So, had you been writing, you know, as an amateur, as it were, before mm. this contest came along? Yeah, yeah, way, way back um, at school, I had a, a sudden moment where the bullying just got too much, and I wrote an essay that basically told the truth for, about um, uh, the emotional horrors I was suffer- suffering through um, the metaphor of the fantastic. So, you know, no change there. That's how it's been ever since. <laughs> and, um, and from there, I started writing Doctor Who fan fiction. And some of my fan fiction contained characters and concepts which got all the way to the TV show. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, because the fan fiction became the New Adventures books, and the New Adventures books became the TV show. Did you write any of those New Adventures books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote um, five, six, or seven, depending on how you count it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, no, no answer in Doctor Who is ever a solid answer. It's always discuss. <laughs> That is true. That is true. Now, I, I must. I mean, I knew you'd written for the show. Obviously, I didn't realize that you'd also written the. Uh, were those your first novels? Uh, yeah. And um, my first comics were also Doctor Who comics. Uh, uh, that I did not know. Oh, okay. Because I, I knew you, I think I first came across your work when you were writing the relaunch of Excalibur. Captain Britain and, M- and MI13. That's it. Sorry. Yes, yes. And Americans always add a the before MI13 like it's a band. <laughs> I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what that's about. And there weren't 13 of them. So, yeah. Well, no, that'd be a big band. That's more of a, you know, a, a rhythm of blues orchestra. <laughs> that's, it's like double slipknot. Um, <laughs> that, that's a double knot, I think you'll find. It's harder to get out of. <laughs> was that your first Marvel work then? Um, my first Marvel work was a uh, title called Wisdom, which was Pete Wisdom on his own. Oh, actually, maybe I, I may have read that. Actually, that might be what I'm thinking of because mm. that became Captain Britain and MI13, didn't it? Yeah, and um, I got that uh, through Mark Mellar, the uh, comics writer, emailing me out of the blue, um, saying, "I really liked your Doctor Who. Would you like to write for Marvel Comics?" And um, so that's a, obviously something any young writer listening can can duplicate. <laughs> of course, you've just got to wait for Mark Miller to mail you. Completely out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's a sign that obviously it's about momentum. That the the hardest thing of all is the first credit, and it gets easier from then on. That's absolutely true, actually, isn't it? Yeah, and and I mean, it's why so much of most young writers' uh, efforts are to getting that first publication. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that that's not wrong. It, it really is. That's the hardest thing to do, and once you cross that boundary uh you know suddenly you can go oh okay well i can do this and people are willing to pay me for it or at least publish what i do you know take that sort of chance on it and then you have examples of your work you can show people that that bring with them not just the quality of the work 
itself, but the commendation of whoever commissioned that. Yes. Yes. Assuming that they were happy with it, like, yeah. Well, if they weren't, I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> I suppose that's true, yeah. Yeah. But there is that implicit, once you get published, there is that sort of implicit, well, these people were willing to take a risk on me and they were happy with the results, therefore, you know, other people yeah. should be as well. It is, uh, as I say, I know so much effort is put into that, but it is valid. It's for a reason. Mm. So uh, what are you working on at the moment? <laughs> There's lots of stuff I can't tell you about. Oh, of course, there always are, yeah. <laughs> but I've um, just delivered the final Lichford novella, The Fifth, and that's now to my editor's satisfaction, so we, we move on to the uh, proof of uh, the copy editor. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased to have completed that, that cycle. And um, I'm, as we speak, today I've been writing a short story destined for Uncanny magazine, because what Uncanny do is they advertise as part of their Kickstarter funding drive before the start of each year, who will be writing for them that year. And that, and they asked me if I wanted to be one of those, and I said, yep. So it puts a certain amount of pressure on you. I, I know I have to provide <laughs> Uncanny with a story within this year. You can't let them down. Yeah, and while I'm waiting for loads of other stuff that's about to descend on me deadline-wise, um, for instance, I'm two issues into a five-issue creator-owned comic. Um, I've written the first two scripts which are being drawn, and soon, soon enough they'll be asking me for the third one. Um, and there's various TV things that will happen on deadline and, and many more comics things that will happen on deadline. Um, I just sent in a plot for a a thing um, at a comics company, um, and that was received very positively. So I await the results of that as well. Uh, so I thought, let's try and do that um, short story in the meantime. And the short story provides me with good therapy because, you know, we're all a little scared at the moment. And being in control of the very tiny tools it takes to make a short story feels good feels like I'm controlling some aspect of my environment. Um, the, the, I, I find for me there are two ways to do a short story. Either I write tons and then throw away tons as I work out what it's about and chuck the stuff that wasn't about that thing, or I go quite slowly adding a bit here and a bit there. Um, so I know my absolute limit is 7,500 words. That's what Uncanny have told me. And my lower limit is 1,000 words, which I've passed already. Um, but right now, it would make a very unsatisfying 1,000 words. <laughs> um, so today, I went back um, over what I had and introduced my one of my two protagonists earlier and got us to know them a bit before the scenario itself started. The scenario has... A two or three big SFNL idea, well, one really big SFNL idea that I think is original and want to base the whole thing around. Um, but I've done that lovely business of world building along the way. They call it um, dropping cues mm -hmm. in SFNL circles, rather like um, the writer of a mystery story will drop clues and red herrings. The writer of a, an SF short story will drop, drop cues as to the nature of the world. Yes. 
And uh, SF readers, particularly those who, you know, say read every issue of Asimov's or something like that, become incredibly adept at picking up on your world building. And that's kind of like the beat of the song for them. You know, um, they will, that's where the craft lies. Um, I once went to, um, uh, to see a kabuki performance in Japan. And the audience, to our surprise, um, clapped and applauded and shouted out the names of the performers when they made a particularly lovely physical move. When they moved their elbow in a certain way, or it was like they'd done it so perfectly that um, the audience just went, way and shouted out. The n- and I thought, theatre would be so much better in the West if we did that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, what they're seeing is those little cues, those moment of, moments of craft. And I really enjoy the process of world building through putting those in and often i discover what the world of the story is like in the process of putting those there and you know first draft they'll contradict each other so i have to go back and pull out the ones that don't fit the world as we finally reveal it and the world will comment on the characters and the characters on the world um and hopefully the ending of this i have no idea what the ending will be um which is an awful place to be in and i would never myself in this position with a longer form piece of work no but you can afford to with a short story can't you yeah because um uh, you're not going to be there that long and unless you go the hauling out lots and lots of words route um you can afford to potter about and see what comes but ideally what i'm looking at is an ending which sets up a momentum um, so that the re- it will actually end in the reader's imagination, in the reader's head after they finish the story, and will leave you on a suitably literary note of ambiguity that makes you consider what everything that's gone before. Um, and oh, don't know how I'm going to achieve that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the fun. That is always the trickiest part of a short story. I don't write many short stories, but I, I, I like to delve into them occasionally. And funnily enough, as we speak, I was writing a short story this morning as well. Um, mm. And I'm also in a position where I've got the basic story, but now I'm like, I want a satisfying ending and I'm, you know, sort of trying to feel my way around that. But that is, I find one of the most difficult parts of the short story is ending it. Like it's easy to start. And because they're short, it's actually fairly easy to sort of get through the middle because there there aren't those long act two slogs that you get with longer form stories. Mm. I mean, you know, if need be, you can just go back and rewrite pretty much the entire story, but it's the ending. Mm. You've got to have like every short story that people remember, every good short story you've ever read has had that ending and you've got to, you've got to nail it. Well, not, not necessarily. I mean, hopefully not a twist ending in fact, because it doesn't have to be a twist, but it has to have, that x factor yes yes um i i tend to i will rewrite the whole piece if it's a short piece i'll rewrite the whole thing every morning anyway i mean i'll I'll just start from the top and work my way to where where i was because that gives you a, a bit of extra fuel you know you'll add a bit a bit here and there as you go you'll use up some word count and um you'll hopefully have a few more ideas when you get to the coal face that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Adding fuel to it. And again, you can kind of see, I don't do that when I'm writing a novel 
or a longer thing like a screenplay or something. But for a short story, yeah, you can, again, you can afford to do it because it is so short and you're not wearing yourself out every time. Yeah. Um, I, oof, the idea of doing that for a, a novel. Whoa. Oh, I know writers who do that, who will, Ooh. like, you know, re- edit everything they've written up until that point. And I find it mad, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Um, yeah, I was. You were saying about readers picking up on world building and stuff, uh, especially in in SF, and that is that is true. Although you can't take it for granted, which I found, funnily enough, the last short story I had published in Interzone, uh, one reader, his main complaint was that I didn't explain anything for like the first two thousand words. I just dropped readers right in it, <laughs> and everything was these like, hints through dialogue of world building, you know. A lot of readers would lap that. I know, I know. It was, and most of them did, but you know, there was the. You always remember the negatives, don't you? It was the one reader who was yeah. like, "I had no idea what was going on," and then suddenly I get this big info dump in the middle, and I was like, "Well, there were actually a lot of clues at the start as well, but never mind." You're still bitter. And not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, why did you choose for the for the Litchford stuff? Why did you choose novellas rather than novels? Other than the fact that it's just less work, obviously. But you know, you've written novels, so you're not afraid of the length of the form. I'm not sure it is less work. Um, the um, the plot is still the same length. Uh, well, no, no, there are not the subplots, but the central plot has to stand up like that of a novel, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, it just seemed to be that since Litchford is a recognisable modern place where I can do character comedy about a small Cotswolds town, because that's where I live, the um, the readers aren't going to need cues about that. They're not going to need that explaining or world building. They know what those buildings look like. They know what the, the sort of people are. So uh, a lot of what would go into a fantasy novel of you know, kind of do, doing the world building isn't required here. We just have to do world building on the magical bits. And um, so that kind of suits the novella length. And honestly, what it came down to more more than anything else was that my friend Lee Harris was in charge of the novellas and asked me what my, if I had any ideas. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he made the first literature one, the first of the novellas, which was very nice. And... Um, you know, um, it was about a market opening up and me tailoring something to that. The Litchford was originally a TV script, um, uh, which I tried to hawk around places, but it wasn't the shape of it wasn't right. I fixed the shape in the, in adapting it into a book, in effect, and chucked almost all of it. Oh, that's interesting. But I, I can see. I mean, you say you chucked most of it, but nevertheless, I can see the kind of relationship between what would be a TV script and, yeah, the length of a novella. Yeah, it's about right, I think. Because, as we know, trying to get trying to match a TV script to a novel in either direction means that, you know, the amount of stuff in there is just too, too different. But maybe for novellas, it feels about the same? I, I think that's true. I mean, depending on the novella. I mean, as Lee has found, uh, with all the very disparate um, titles he publishes under the Tor.com banner, um, actually the amount of narrative space in a novella varies enormously. Um, there are some very dense ones, and you know, I'm 
I'm on the fairly shallow side in terms of amount of information. But, you know, it, it isn't necessarily about how, uh, how packed it is. Being asked to write for a form is always nice. Mm. I mean, and that's something that I think people who don't, who don't yet make a living at it realize, perhaps realize how much of what we do comes down to that. Cause I've definitely been in that similar position where people have just said, I'm looking for something that fits this. What have you got? Yeah. Now, in your case, you had something that you could adapt. I've in the past quite often not had anything, but I, it allows me to then go away and think, okay, well, if I was going to do that, what would it be? You know, what, what could I come up with that would fit that form? Well, it's the perfect thing, isn't it? The um, moment when you don't have a blank piece of paper, when somebody has said, here is actually the shape of the piece of paper, how would you fill that? I mean, that's uh, a lovely, lovely opportunity when those things come along. It is, although it is, st- it is still blank at that point. <laughs> yeah, it is. But at least you have more more guidelines than you would if you were just starting out with an idea of your own true yeah so are you uh i mean you've done obviously you you do a lot of your creator-owned stuff you you know you do a lot of work like novels and creator-owned comics and what have you but you have also worked a lot in the commission space like tv and work for higher comics and stuff yeah do you approach them differently i mean like not the not necessarily how you sit down and script something, because that's going to be the same pretty much for everyone, but in terms of how you come up with a story for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I do treat just about the same. Um, I mean, my New Adventures Doctor Who novels were very, very me, and I think that's why they worked, that um, I didn't have any cringe about continuing in the shadow of something or you know if i did but i I wasn't going to show it on the page um i wanted to say this is a new thing and here i am and uh, i think that the previous novels in that series had to some degree felt the need to fit in with the spirit of the the shape of what had come before and my my revolution was to say, um, this is a novel and I'm going to do novel-ish things in it (laughs) Um, and not necessarily, and will bend Doctor Who to the shape of the novel. And um, so that was a new thing. And I'm I'm still very, very pleased and proud about that. Um, And I think that's how I do things all over. I mean, I've just done a one-off Star Trek comic for IDW's Year 5 series and uh, which was a gorgeous experience. They're wonderful people, uh, the Year 5 crew. And um, wonderful artist, Christopher Jones. Um, but I, I'd i always wanted to write a Kirk Roman, so that was the first thought in my head. Um, I actually approached them with that. Uh, I was talking to um, the editor of the line and said i don't suppose there's a chance that i could do a one-off kirk romance and you said oh valentine special yeah let's give it a go <laughs> um so doing a kirk romance with a fellow captain had been in my head for years um and then in working out the details of it uh i 
had a thought to be a bit like Warren Ellis. Um, Warren's um, tremendous talent is being concise. Uh, um, he can suggest an awful lot with the right words, and he never has more words than he has to. And um, so I, in order to tell a sweeping story across decades of Star Trek lore in 20 pages, I really needed that. So I really got into his voice to do that. I mean, this is something that often works, actually. I, I mean, I listen to uh, current science fiction on Audible uh, in order to be in conversation with the genre, in order to have other people in the field's voices in my head all the time. And I'm listening to William Gibson at the moment, which probably my joint favourite author with Christopher Priest. Mm -hmm. And um, Gibson's voice is very good for young writers. I mean, it, it gives you a lovely, steady beat to play off of. You, I don't mean copy. I mean that you hear it when you're coming up with your own sentences. I'm sure you can hear it in my current short story. But then you push away from it, consciously or unconsciously. And in the case of the Star Trek comic, I was um, summoning up my inner Warren Ellis and then pushing away from it. Um, no, no wonder comics writers like Grant Morrison um, and Alan Moore uh, kind of uh, indulge in the mystic um, because that sense of summoning up uh, a kind of a lower, a voodoo presence to uh, kind of run some of your internal processes um, <laughs> You know, I mean, I, li I literally uh, thought, what would Warren do with the tattoo I was wearing? <laughs> I do that sometimes with uh, Andy Diggle. When I, particularly when I'm writing action sequences, I always think, what would Diggle do? Yeah, yeah. WWDD. <laughs> um, yeah, con concision and that kind of economy of words is obviously really important in comics and in screenwriting. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that moving from having started doing, you know, a fair amount of screenwriting before getting to comics. How did that, did it help? Did it influence you or was it just completely different? Um, once you've got used to a particular gear change, then actually they do help each other. And the gear change is this. In television, you're writing things that are happening right now. Um, he runs to the door, flings it open, and jumps out of it. Um, in comics, uh, one of the newbie mistakes is to do that, I've just said, as a panel description. Uh, yes, too many things. <laughs> yeah, there's several different things going on there. It's impossible to draw. So... The way I formalize that move from one thing to another in my writing is that in comics, I write in the past tense. Um, let me think of a good example. Um, well, I, w I probably wouldn't write he's running to the door because that still looks weird. Doors in comics are really hard. <laughs> um, but um, he's opened the door. Um, so, you know, he's standing there with a hand on, hand on the door, holding it open. Um, he's put the glass down on the table. We can see his hand over the glass, which is now sitting there on the table. I'm basically saying this is a completed snapshot. This is something that has been done. 
as opposed to he puts the glass on the table or yes. he opens the door, exactly. right? which is what I would do. Yeah, yeah. And it just lets me, it gets in my head the, the right change of gear from television to, to comics. That's really interesting because I had, I started in comics and then started writing fairly shortly after started writing video games as well. Mm. And I found that there is, it's the same thing, like you said, about switching gears, but there is a lot of crossover. In fact, I've, I've given talks uh, about, you know, sort of bringing skills from one to the other, that there is a lot of crossover in writing from one to the other that's different to writing for the screen. I think that's, you know, that's a common mistake that people make. They assume that writing video game oh. cutscenes is like writing for the screen, but it's, it's really not. Well, I know nothing about writing for video games. It's an area I've always been fascinated by, but I, I have no experience of it. It's one of those areas that is, I mean, talk about networking. Like It's all, it's practically a closed shop, and I fell into it backwards by accident. Um, and so did most of the other writers in games that I know. It's a really, it's, it's not so much that it's a difficult field to get into, but it's a difficult field to get into unless that's all you want to do. It's such a large percentage of it is accident. I, I think it would be a reasonable approximation to say we only ever get jobs by accident. Almost, yeah. Yeah, well, I think there's there's that initial drive, like we said earlier, about the sort of everybody's got that initial urge, that need to be published for the first time in whatever medium or format it is. Uh, and I think that does take, you know, we know that that takes tenacity, like massive amounts of tenacity and sort of, you know, repetitive effort and what have you. But yeah, once you, again, once you cross that barrier and you're kind of in the market, you do tend to find yourself suddenly going, oh, how did I wind up writing this? I, I think that initial tenacity is like you've got your, you're slipping down the cliff face and, um, you know, most people just slip straight down the cliff face and into the ocean. But the the person with enough tenacity has their fingers just <laughs> poised for any little ledge that comes along and will grab it, you know. But, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I I think um, talking about uh, the difference between um, uh, TV and and uh, comics, it, it's about budgeting in both areas. In that. Um, in comics, it's about budgeting space on the page. Uh, my first comics, like everybody's first comics, had far too many words, enormous speech bubbles, uh, speech balloons, rather. Uh, Richard Starkings told me about this the other day. That, I was going to say, careful, you'll have people like Starkings and John Byrne on yeah, your back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because thought bubble, speech balloon. Um, yeah, so it's about budgeting space. It's about not filling up the, the space with too much you know um, I start getting itchy these days when there's more than six panels on a page um, or it used to be 25 words in a, in a balloon but letterers these days have got much more power and much more ability and much more um, computing on their side to, to not do that but the um uh, whereas in TV, it's about budgeting of money to some extent still, you know, or, and e extraneousness, whether this character needs to say anything, mm. you know. Um, could we, in both cases, could we start this scene later? Um, 
you know, it, it's always about cutting down and representing a bigger thing with a few small gestures. I think that's television and comics both. I'm always reminded. I mean, yes, yeah, start late and end early is kind of, you know, is, is a, a constant in any medium. Um, I'm always reminded of some years ago. Do you remember the series Foil's War? Yeah. By, yeah. Written by Anthony Horowitz and starring Michael Kitchen. And um, I've gotten to know Anthony from adapting the Alex Ryder uh, books to graphic novels. Um, and I remember him telling me that quite often he would write long, long speeches, you know, in sort of uh, fire and brimstone, uh, righteous justice things for Michael Kitchen to say in Foyle's War. And Michael Kitchen would just red pun the whole lot and go, I can do that with a look. It's fine. And, yeah. and he would. <laughs> you know, and then he, he'd, he'd go, are you sure? Like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then he'd watch it back and go, yeah, yeah, you were right. Okay. <laughs> Didn't need all those words. <laughs> it's difficult writing those looks, though. It must be said. Well, I think that's that's why you need an actor of the quality of Michael Kitchen, isn't it? I, I, I do like, in both comics and television, those times when you can convey things silently. Yes. Um, you need an artist in comics to be those actors who can do the act. We actually use the word acting, don't we? You know, an artist who can do the acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working with a really nice one at the moment, one I can't talk about on this uh, creator own project, who's got a really nice fine control over the acting. And once you realize that, then you can free up a lot of words, actually. Um, you need to sort of see where the artist is at with that. I mean, in the 1990s, good Lord. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're lucky if you've got a facial expression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're lucky if you've got a face. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's, let's get a bit deeper then into when you get the spark of an idea, what do you, what do you do? Like what's your process for sort of, figuring out what medium it'll go into, what format it should be, how, what kind of a story it's going to be, you know, how, what's your process for developing from the spark through to the story? Well, often it's recognizing that there's a, a potential market in a specific area and then finding from your enormous memory bank of, um, or in this case, a file on my computer containing ideas, um, things that I've maybe tried a long time ago that could do with renovating or things I've tried in one medium that could fit another. Um, I always say that um, non-writers and writers alike all have the same number of creative ideas. It's just that writers write them down. And so I've got a um, uh, Evernote on my um, PC and on my tablets and on my phone. And that saves everything to the same source so i can literally if i wake up in the middle of the night roll over tap a few words on my tablet and it's on all my devices the next morning and it's about keeping those ideas and nourishing them and growing them into things um so you know sometimes the idea will be rubbish um especially the ones you write having woken up in the middle of the night and go back to sleep afterwards they'll just be (laughs) surreal nonsense a lot of the time but um uh it's about building those ideas together. I've got a whiteboard in front of me as we speak on the um, wall of my office. And that's got just one sentence or two 
And a, a lot of them, are, I thought, well, maybe this will go into the uncanny story. And so I've erased a few of them just in the last couple of days as I've started to build that story. Um, but they are your tiny building blocks of stories, just bits. Um, I, I, one of them I've written here because it's so generic. I don't think this is going <laughs> to. What really? I don't think this is going to make a millionaire, millionaires of any of your listeners. <laughs> um, what what rebuilds the world can rebuild him too. Um, it's that sort of level of idea. Yep. I mean that's not that's not the central idea of something, but that's a theme or a subplot or something like that. Right. I I, I often find yes that those little sort of aphorisms. As you like, they're not, you know, they're not necessarily especially profound mm. and they're not something that's going to make you a million dollars, but they are important. Well, thank you very much. I mean, <laughs> yes. But they are important to like to the story that you're doing because and I often find that those things don't come until I'm in the middle of writing the story. That's the funny thing. If I try and come up with those uh-huh. guiding themes and lights when I'm outlining. Well, well how would you, how would you try? I mean, trying to have ideas. Oh, no, if I try and think of those sort of guiding themes, like, as you said, you know, what rebuilds the world can rebuild him. That's the sort of thing that, for me, comes once I start writing rather than at the outline stage. And I don't know why that is. I've never, you know, when I'm outlining, I'm mostly concerned with the plot turns and, you know, maybe character beats if they're important to some overall arc or something. But yeah, that feeling of, okay, what's the point here? What am I actually trying to say? Generally doesn't come until later. I I know writers, and I'm sometimes I agree with this, who think that character is just a function of plot. Um, Stephen Moffat says this, that um, there is only plot. Um, I, this has been a decades long debate between us. Um, (laughs) I, I like to think there's something else, um, but at the same time, oh, there's mostly plot. There's a lot of plot. <laughs> well, there's the. Uh, I mean, some people will argue that character is plot. That's what you're saying, in the fact. You know, yeah. that everything that drives the plot is decisions by the characters, mm. and or rather, the characters are formed of plot. That what we call characters are just the frothy bits on the top of plot. <laughs> Readers get really attached to those frothy bits. Yes, <laughs> and, um, and it's odd to watch people get attached to bits of mathematics. But there we are. So you said you you use Evernote, which is one of those shoebox apps to sort of mm. capture everything. Do you actually make? I mean, you put your ideas in there. Do you make like story notes in there, or do you, or is that reserved for things like your whiteboard or you know uh, whatever word processor you're using? The, the line between the whiteboard and Evernote is very grey. I don't right. know. Uh, and, and honestly, it, it depends how they come. I mean, there's some much more involved stuff. There's actual skeletal plot work in Evernote as well. And um, and if it gets to a real, there's lots of this stuff, I'll just start a document on the PC. And, you know, we'll actually put it down and start making it into a... Um, a plot on my desktop in front of me as we speak. Um, there are one, two, three, four. There's about fifteen um, 
mostly actually functioning ideas, that is, things that are out there in the world with people looking at them, mm-hmm. or th- that I'm actually in the process of writing for publication. Um, and those are mostly, to some degree, finished plots. Um, there are there are unfinished plots in Evernote, and um, nothing plot nothing big enough to be a plot gets on the whiteboard. I wish I had a specific system as to what goes where, but there we are. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand that. That sounds very similar to how I use. I use Apple Notes, but it's the same. The point is that it's everywhere I go on my phone, iPad, computer, etc. Um, mm. But it's the same thing with me. Yeah, if it's just an idea, even if it is a skeletal plot, it stays in notes, and it's not until I actually think, okay, I'm ready to start writing this, that's when it comes out. And for me, it's a scrivener yeah. project, but it's the same principle of it stays in the notes until I think it's ready. And that means, just like you, I'm sure, I have hundreds, literally hundreds of little scrap notes in there that will probably never be anything, but, you know, they're not doing any harm just sitting there and you never know. Yeah. I I do have one um, uh, Evernote, which um, says, uh, which is called um, current projects, which are things that are actually on the go right now that I have to remember something for. Yes. Or... Uh, you know, it's. Uh, let me just have a a quick look, um, and I'll give you a flavour of uh, what's in that file. Um, work in progress, I call it. Oh yeah, I, I got a character name um, wrong, as it were, because it's taken from real life um, in the first issue of my creative own comic. And I'm waiting for. The, uh, and I'm waiting for the uh, lettering draft, the draft you write that goes off to the letterer before correcting it. And I've just written it down here, so I will remember to do that. <laughs> and um, things that I've written down ready for um, the next draft of uh, something. So, you know, just to rem- remind myself that these are the things I've, I've thought of that I want to do differently next time. Um yeah, uh, so that's that's I think is a is a useful one. None of these tools really matter very much, though. You can do this with just a, a pad of paper and a pen by your bedside. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I always think that aspiring writers, um, I, I do I do recall how desperate I was to learn the right shape for a TV script and the right shape for a comic script. And of course, there is a right shape for a TV script, which is these days represented by Final Draft, but. There isn't a right shape for a comic script, um, but it's good that because everybody uses something vastly different. But it's good for a young writer to, by young I mean beginning writer, to actually have a template comic script that they can copy because that gives you a certain feeling of confidence. Yes. Um, nothing more than that. So I've, I've got a standard shape that I share with other people in terms of, of that, which was given to me by... Um, uh, one of my editors, um, which I and which I really appreciated and kept ever since. Um, but you know, you're not going to you're not going to you're not going to write a novel because of Scrivener. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's um, I um, I I don't know. I barely know how Word works. I write in Word. <laughs> I use about three of its functions. 
Uh, and my wife is amazed by this, that I will actually call her in and ask her how to do something in work <laughs> after all these years. To be fair, I mean, I do uh, rave about Scrivener a fair bit, but I only use like maybe 20% of what that can do. It's just that that particular 20% that I use for me really does help me uh, write better than a linear word processor does because I, I just I don't write in a linear fashion and my mind just can't. Yeah. You know, just doesn't quite work that way. But it, nevertheless, as you say, it's not the app itself is not writing anything. And I could do all of this with a pen and a pad of paper if I really had to. Um, and I think that's the that's the lesson that young, as you say, beginning writers have to learn. And sometimes it is. And I recall this myself when I was a beginning writer. It is difficult to make them understand. And it was difficult for me to understand that the tools really don't matter. They're really not important. You know, they are tools of convenience, but they will not give you good ideas or improve your craft yeah. or write a great story. Where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> um, I actually have an answer. Oh, go on. Go on. I'm cleaning my teeth. Um I get ideas when I'm cleaning my teeth. I don't know if now it's about association that I've thought that <laughs> and thus. But I have this intricate theory involving neurons in one's stomach as well as in the brain because one does have neurons in one's stomach. And um, well, actually, gut feeling is that amazing way humans have of uh, summing up in a concept something which turns out later to be real in their biology. <laughs> um and uh, maybe they they talk various uh, anthropologists talk about how the beginnings of language might have been something to do with eating around a campfire and i'm wondering if i'm by cleaning my teeth i'm stimulating um a different bit of my brain or the gut or something like that uh hitting the language centers um and you know, if I'm completely wrong, I've still got excellent dentistry. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my theory about that. I subscribe to a thing, uh, and people can read more about this when The Organised Writer comes out later this year, but I subscribe to a thing called Clean Mind Theory. Oh, yeah. And the idea is that we are at our most creative when our mind is completely clean, as it were, of concerns about the outside world. When we can just forget about paying the bills, walking the dog, going shopping, anything like that, and just focus purely on, you know, on the writing. Um, and one of the ways to do that is, for me personally, is I start to write as soon as I get up in the morning. Yes, I brush my teeth and obviously have breakfast and stuff, but mm. then I sit down and that's where, that's my most creative time is when yeah. I have, you know, I haven't checked my email, I haven't checked Twitter, none of that. I've just, and I have this this clean mind. But I also get ideas when I'm brushing my teeth, funnily enough. Uh, and I think, but I think it's because of that. I think it's because I've woke up and I have no other concerns. I'm going through a robotic motion that I do every day that I don't have to consciously think about. And so that's why my brain starts going, okay, so here are the things that I've been working on while you were asleep. And here are some ideas for, you know, stories we're currently working on. And what I often find is that I'm then furiously typing notes into my phone while the kettle's boiling and I'm making my breakfast. Yeah. I, as I said earlier, I think that it's everybody has ideas. Um, writers are the ones who keep them, remember them, and make use of them. And 
Uh, well, my wife has, has noticed a very specific thing that I do. And if um, I'm, if I suddenly start to say to her and think that I'm the worst writer who ever lived, that I'm absolutely useless at this, that this is just, ag I'm agonizingly awful. She will now say to me, something wrong two pages ago. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's like my, my unconscious has got an alarm system that stops me from building on something, on an unsafe foundation, on something that um, will, you know, if I've got a plot I'm really happy, happy with, often it'll be, I've just suddenly in writing decided to go off and explore that bit over there, which isn't in the plot, um, discovered actually there's nothing there, that, that, that this, will, this will support no further structure. <laughs> um, and uh, but anyway, but the alarm that goes off is me thinking I'm an awful writer. I'm trying to cut down the time between that alarm going off and realising. <laughs> it's difficult to do, years, though, It's come it? down to about a day. It really is. <laughs> a day, actually, that's... That's not bad. I don't recognise writer's block, but that's my sort of associated condition. I mean, I, writer's block is depicted in sitcoms where you wander around with a hand on your head emoting. Um, I think you can always go off and write something else. You certainly will, will, will get to points where you are feeling stymied and don't know what to do with a particular thing. Maybe it would be healthy to write something else, and you can. Um, or you could just sit down and start writing this thing that's causing you trouble and you'll write a couple of thousand words of rubbish. Um, but you know, you're going to, you're going to rewrite it anyway. Um, I think maybe that's the big sign I would put on the, de uh, on the wall above beginning writers desks. You're going to rewrite it. So, which frees you up, you know, yeah. um, your first, your first draft will be rubbish. Of course it will be. Um, but if you start writing that thing that's causing you trouble without worrying about the trouble, you probably will come up with a solution. Through the process of writing it, exactly. Paul, yeah. this is music to my ears. This is exactly my belief. My theory about writer's block is that it's all about fear. Mm. It's not that you're blocked. It's that the only ideas you can think of, you are worried are no good and therefore you don't want to write them. But what the experienced writer knows, as you say, is that if you just write those bad ideas because they're bad you and you know they're bad, you will come up with something better. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that until you've got the bad idea out. You need to get to the end of something, whether it's a whole work or a chapter or a section or, a, you know, a scene or whatever, to be able to see the shape of it. And then you can go, oh, okay, I think I know what's wrong with this now. And then, yeah, as you say, you will end up rewriting it, but you're going to do that anyway. And, and sometimes that business of sitting down and writing, it isn't actually writing the prose. It's maybe getting a pad of paper and putting it down in diagrams and working out what your plot problem is by seeing how those diagrams work together or something like that. But, it, you know, knead the dough, get into it, start. Yeah. You, you write about fear. It's that paralyzing, it's what I feel that when my wife notices, it's that power, power, paralyzing sense of terror. Um, Russell T. Davis once said to me, it's awful, isn't it? We're making a living on stuff that just comes out of our heads. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually, um, 
uh, a great believer in if you were really stuck, you go out and party. Oh, right. And the tension tension falls away and um, you, you break the shape of the stuff in your head and you come back and hopefully you won't be worried about it anymore. See, it's that hopefully part that I, I would have trouble subscribing to that. But also, I just don't go to many parties anymore. Well, also, you know, Russell's <laughs> idea, being being the immense self-taskmaster that he is, Russell's idea of partying might be popping out the door, <laughs> going to a, going to a pub, having a dance or a half or something like that, looking at his watch and going straight back to his typewriter. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, enough, enough of this high life, back to work. Yes. But yeah, it is, as I say, I'm a great believer that it is just about, like you said, kneading the dough. That's a really good way of putting it because one of my favorite, uh, when I get stuck on an outline, one of my favorite things to do is to, because it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of a, especially a novel length outline, you know, something that's quite complex, is I'll just put everything aside and rewrite bullet points of the, you know, this outline, this plot but from memory, without actually looking at anything I've done before. Ooh, that's good. What I find there is that only the good stuff basically sticks in my memory. Uh, and it, yeah. it's, I mean, it's not the whole, that's not the whole solution, but it's a really good way of kind of reinvigorating my interest in something where I might be getting a bit fatigued. I, I often find that if you go through the plot so far, you'll find that thing as I say, not where you are now, where you assume the problem is, but a little way back, that's probably where the problem is. And if you go through the plot, revising it, you will hopefully get some idea of where to go forward to, but you will also maybe stumble upon that thing which is getting in the way. Oh, we should talk about um, killing your children. Oh, yes. Um, killing your darlings. Or killing your children. I mean, you know, I'm not fussy. <laughs> <laughs> so many times um, I have gotten too in love with a bit. Um, and it's such a nice bit, uh, but actually it doesn't fit with everything else. And often the quickest thing, way to solve one of these things is to take out that bit that you really like, but it honestly doesn't fit with anything else. You can use that bit elsewhere. And often, often... Um, trying to hang on to a nice bit has been my undoing. Right, because you find yourself trying to write other things so that you can keep the favourite bit. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've done that. I think we probably all have. There's a, there's a chapter that was originally going to be the opening chapter, the prologue of London Falling, that eventually appeared halfway through the third book. Oh, wow. <laughs> and... <laughs> And every single book I kept trying to put it in, and my editor kept saying, no, it's still not got any reason to be there. So I actually <laughs> plotted the third book to actually <laughs> organically have it. See, I, I made, um, when I was doing Wasteland, I made an outlet for myself in that I did these micro prose bits at the end of every issue, uh, literally mm -hmm. like 800 words, you know, if that. Mm. Um and I used that, and I did them in the form of a travelogue, and I used those to get all of those bits out, all of those neat little ideas I had for this world that had right. absolutely no business being anywhere near the main plot. So I shoved them into these little short stories instead. Yeah, 
Yeah. So uh, one of the few things in uh, in my life that I've done that have actually made my life a little bit easier as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as if you'd really like it if you could write the role playing game manual for your world. You know, then you could just put the ideas down and you wouldn't have to worry about you know putting story. Around. Funnily enough, actually, some of my first professional writing was for a role pl- an old role playing magazine in the UK called Arcane. Oh, oh yeah, I used to read. And then I wrote. RPG supplements for indie role-playing games for American and Canadian companies for a while as well. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your... How many drafts does something go through for you on average? Oh, many as it takes. I mean... Well, sure, but I mean, like, are you a sort of, you know, two drafts and then it's done? Or are you ten drafts? Or, is it, you know, somewhere in the middle? Varies vastly. I mean, the, the last Litchford was two drafts, but that came as something of a surprise to me. Um, that basically um, Lee's notes were so good and so on, on point, uh, as they off, always are. Um, but this time also there was no major structural thing. So sorting his notes didn't create areas where we had to go back and forth on new stuff. Um, so that was just two drafts. But usually a, a Litchford will be four or five. Um, and, and, of course, getting to write the ending. Uh, means that that shuts down a lot of possibilities. So that's, if you know what the ending is, that's the easiest bit. Yeah. Um, knowing what the ending is, wow, what a luxury. <laughs> um, the uh, But no, honestly, uh, the editor will tell me when that's uh, enough drafts, honestly. <laughs> but what about, say, for a, a comic script? Because, I mean, comics obviously are produced so much more quickly than most prose. Well, I have here on um, uh, the first two issues of the Creator Owned. Um, I've got uh, issue one is at draft three, and issue two is at draft two, and those those are both going to be drawn. There will come. I mean, both of these were rewritten every time I, re- I I opened the file, so these are just the drafts I sent in. Oh right. There will be many more versions, and of course they'll change again when the art is finished, and I will alter the dialogue to more closely match the art yeah for the lettering yeah yeah um i think that's such a a lovely thing to be able to do um it's like adr in uh, tv that you can alter a line right at the end right except Um, it doesn't have to be adr you know you can do it like right there (laughs) in full view well well, they're facing the camera (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) i once attended an amazing editing session on my itv children's show where the editor showed me all his tricks and um, just things that they can do, like uh, we'll catch a reflection of that character in the window here, and then we'll be sure of their presence, even though the a- actor wasn't in that bit of the scene. So we don't have to go back and shoot that again. Just tremendous. The, the ones that I always look out for, because yeah, I'm privy to a few of these, but not I've never actually been in an edit suite. So I'm uh, going from you know sort of what I've seen uh, is the ones where if you look closely, you can quite clearly tell you're looking sort of from behind over somebody's shoulder while they're talking. So you can't actually see their lips. Oh, yeah. You can tell from the way their jaw's going that this is not the original dialogue they spoke when that was shot. (laughs) You're often looking at the back of an actor's head and you hear, so, so so-and-so was thinking me, Bob, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we need a line here to make sure the viewers got that. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. 
man. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff goes on in, in film and TV. So many things that people just, you know, if people saw behind the scenes and realised how much smoke and mirrors there is, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say another thing about tools. Um, mm. I, I think that certain, um, you know, screenwriting books like Save the Cat, um, they are a useful tool for that, that outlines, I think it's 15, a 15-point plot shape. And it's it's great if you've got a bunch of ideas and you can read that and hang your ideas from those pegs and you will have a starter shape. But it is a starter shape. You know, um, you don't actually get loads of Hollywood movies in the shape of Save the Cat. Um, but what you do get is lots of first drafts, I would think, in that shape. Mm. And then in editing, you'll bust that shape and you'll do other things. And, of course, the best movies are the ones that ignore established shapes altogether and take us somewhere completely unexpected. Um, but, again, if you're a newbie, then having somebody say, this is the gospel about how a movie should have, this is the shape a movie should have, um, feels good, feels reassuring and you needn't be guilty about using that reassurance for your first draft, I feel. Absolutely. Well, or even for just your first few projects, you yeah. know, those, those first few amateur projects that will never get made, that will never get filmed, or the books that will never get published, or the, the short stories that will never get published, or the comics that will never get drawn. We've all got them, and everybody sort of, you know, goes through that stage. And I think the, you know, the hope is that by the time you come out of that stage and you're ready, to have something that is worthy of being published or made or produced, uh, you've kind of not left that behind so much as just, as you say, learned to use it as a framework, a beginning structure that you then add your own style onto. I mean, I, I would, a specific example of that, the title of the book, Save the Cat, that um, the protagonist should do something early on to establish that they're a good person and therefore we should like them, um, saving the cat from a fire. Um, I think that maybe um, a better way to do that would be to make them a relatable person instead of necessarily a good person. Um, in the short story I've just written, it occurs to me I've done exactly that. I've, I, our, um, our protagonist um, has set the controls of their car a particular way and it's annoying now that they're in a different situation but they can't be bothered to change them and that's just like yep you 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 will record you may recognize something like that from your own life and thus feel connected to them they do not have to um you know uh, go and um, say save a wounded deer at the side of the road you know <laughs> well they don't have to be likable either that's the other yeah uh awful piece of advice that you sometimes get yeah maybe likable but not likable um <laughs> <laughs> well like um those villains that steal the show you know um they're still doing villainous stuff and um but they're charismatic yeah yeah and and there's something about them that one one wants to be or one um one sees in oneself I've always thought that the classic villain, uh, yeah, the best villains are the ones that do things that we all want to do, 
but our inhibitions, whether personal or social or professional or whatever, prevent us from doing. And that's why everybody loves Hans Gruber, say, from <laughs> Die Hard. Yes, there's, there's a twinkle, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, J- James Callis sort of specialises in these guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start to close this out then, Paul. So um, what do you when you sit down to write... Let's give you some some of the standard ending questions. What do you really enjoy writing? What are your favourite things to write? Like when you sit down and go, oh, today I've got to write an action scene or a love scene or whatever, you know, or an, or in a police interrogation. What are your favourite things to write? I like restrained emotion. I like um, having a lot of emotion hovering over something, and then I will give you only a tiny bit of it in a very English way. <laughs> and the tiny gestures, kabuki-like, will convey the, the size of the emotion. When I've when I've landed something like, I, li- I like making the audience cry. Um, I like pulling them in, engaging them, and then hurting them very badly. My, my <laughs> wife calls it um, my wife calls it ha ha bang. That um, my my favourite thing is to do something which starts off quite comedically and then has a, a emotional punchline. Knight and Squire being the, the comic series that really does that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's my favourite thing. All right. To counter that, then, what do you dread coming to write? Back in the day, I used to actually try and write the scenes where people go from one set piece to another. Um, Love and War, the um, Doctor Who new adventure, um, has quite a few bits where um, I'm visibly, audibly going, well, I've got another set piece just over this hill, but it's quite a way before we can get there. <laughs> and, uh, and these days I would just cut to that set yeah, piece, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's, um, but uh, it's I, I dread shapeless filler. Um, I'm. I hope that I've been. I've got rid of it now, but meandering. I dread meandering. Um, not knowing quite where I am in the plot. Oh, oh, I know. What I don't like. Go on. The most difficult thing of all is when two characters meet for the first time and they've both got big agendas and they typically in one of my shadow police books have both got lots of plot points that they may want. to talk to each other about what is the obvious and um relatable and realistic order in which they would address the various things they've got to tell each other how does it all come out in what and in what order and how much of it do we actually need to hear though that's hellish oh the massive yeah (laughs) the massive conversational exposition drop well because because these two characters need to exchange information yeah. and, the, and 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 we're assuming the reader has to actually see them do it we can't just cut to well that's an interesting story yeah <laughs> what i tend to do with those actually is i will and this is another example of like just getting it all down and then rewriting the whole thing i will literally just write out everything that they need to say mm. in the most artless clunky conversational way you could possibly imagine with nothing else happening other than these two people just talking at one another just to get all the information down and then i'll go through it and try to make it more artful and put you know other things in than just two people talking and hopefully represent some of it as action 
Yeah, well, and back and forth as well. Like, you know, I like to have people ask other people things uh, so that the information can be given in an answer in what feels like a natural way. That's, you know, something to do. But yeah, the first draft of it is really just writing out everything that the reader needs to know. And then look at it and go, flipping heck, okay, how am I going <laughs> to turn this into something that sounds real? <laughs> one, of the, one of the things Gibson does really well is that he's a mainstream writer because he really keeps his audience up with what's going on. So after the big... Uh, techno uh, SF nor thing is revealed, his characters will keep talking to each other about it for the next three or four chapters. And new characters who come along will ask, so that what was that big SF nor techno thing? And with a joke or a character point or an interesting turn of phrase, another character will bring them up to speed. So you'll hear the same beat three or four times, but it never feels laboured because mm. he puts such effort into creating a new lovely thing each time. Well, and also his, as you said, his prose is so concise and so dense. So mm. much information packed into just a sentence or two that, uh, yeah, as you say, you, it, it keeps the audience up with whatever's going on. Mm. So f- final question then, what is something that you have read recently where the writing itself really impressed you and why well i mean i've been talking about it so william gibson's agency which i'm um two hours from the end of um i think i've read no there's a trilogy of his i haven't read the bridge trilogy but apart from that um i've read everything he's ever done um i went to see him speak in bristol a while back and he was as impressive in person as he is in prose um Comics-wise, um, right now I really love Money Shot, um, which is a Vault Comics mini-series about a team of scientists who fund their expedition into space by doing porn. And uh, it's very funny and sex-positive and not exploitative in the least. Um, it's huge character work and very funny. Um, and... Um, that's just that takes such a light touch uh, to, to 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 I was going to say pull it off. Um, but that's that they they would have been proud of that line. And that's an example of not pulling it off. Yes, <laughs> um, but balance will be different in a minute's time. Of course, of course, it always will. Yeah, this is it can only ever be a snapshot. So, Paul, where can people find you online? Uh, paulcornell.com is my uh, website and blog where everything is summed up and i'm on twitter paul underscore cornell oh and uh, i have a newsletter that comes out every friday um you can find the sign up details on the blog um i talk quite a lot about my personal life and family life uh, as well as what i'm doing that week and uh, you know all the news um keeping up a regular newsletter i i it feels nice to talk to the audience on a regular basis. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, we're all doing newsletters these days, aren't we? Mine is yeah. not so regular these days, but uh, yeah, it's still fun to do. Mm, mm. So what work of yours would you recommend to listeners that they check out if they're not familiar with you at all? Not familiar with me at all. Have a look at the first Litchford book, which is of Litchford. And that's, uh, you said that that's a Tor novella, isn't it? Tor.com publishing. Right. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you so much for having me. 
And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published and other goodies as well. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that's also where you'll find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production, is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. Well, yeah, um, because, sorry, that sounded sarcastic. Yeah, (laughs) duh.